Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast, on which I chat with our writers and the larger Liberties circle about whatever is on our minds. On this week's episode, Liam Weaseltier, editor of Liberties, and I talk with Ramakandra Guha, the Indian writer, about the COVID-19 situation in India, why it's gotten so bad, whether Prime Minister Modi is to blame entirely for it, and why his leadership has been so disastrous over the past year, what he thinks the implications are for the political future in India going forward, and how to think about all of these things in relation with India's past. Ram, thank you for joining um, Leon and me today on the podcast. There's been a lot of news recently about um, just the scale of the COVID disaster in India. Can you just give us um, a v- your view of what went wrong? What what of the many things went wrong over the so, past you know, year? Uh, I look at it as a historian, so I have a rather long view. And it struck me early last year in March that this may be, in fact, our greatest crisis since partition. And I said as much in a newspaper, newspaper column I wrote, because it was by then evident that, uh, you know, the virus was spreading across Europe and North America. We didn't have uh, a robust public health system. Uh, you know, uh, we had other kinds of institutional failures. We are a large, sprawling, complicated, diverse country. So I think there was some complacency to begin with, um, and then, of course, they, the virus did come, uh, and it wasn't as devastating uh, as uh, ha- as it, the manifestations weren't as devastating as they, they had been in your country or in Europe. And then, of course, it went off, and that led to an extraordinary sense of complacency and arrogance among the government. So I think that's one problem. The other problem is that this is a profoundly anti-intellectual, anti-science government. You know, uh, there's a kind of naive belief mm-hmm. in faith, in ancient remedies, and in the superhuman powers of the prime ministers to solve all problems. So all these have, I think India would have had a difficult time anyway, because this is, uh, you know, a very deadly virus. The richest, the most prosperous, the most established countries in the world have had a very hard time. In your country, the best equipped states like New York have had an awful time. So we would have had a uh, you know, we'd had a difficult ride anyway, but it's been exacerbated by arrogance, hubris, complacency, and an anti-intellectual government hostile to science. Well, when I hear you speak this way, Ram, I'm you know reminded about how in recent decades, in so many of the crises that various societies have been experiencing, and this, of course, the the COVID virus was a very extraordinary crisis we bump into the problem of of culture, not just of politics, because here, too, we, you know, Trump, of course, was intellectually primitive and anti-rational and anti-scientific, but it turns out that there are millions and millions of Americans who, at this late date in the history of Enlightenment and of our country, really do not fundamentally believe in science and are suspicious of medicine and this is don't this is this is a little bit terrifying and it's it's a chicken and egg thing you know modi we'll talk about him encourages these people in this obscurantism but the millions of obscurantist people 
in the population also are what enable a man like Modi and very yes. briefly Trump to, to come to power. Absolutely. And, well, I would say he's come to power because of that. Uh, but he's come to power for m- multiple different reasons. Not really, uh, be- I mean, unlike Trump, who always was skeptical and mocking of expertise and knowledge. Modi's ro- road to power was somewhat different from Trump's. But once in power, uh, you know, there's some striking similarities, uh, of course. And of course, part of the tragedy is that compared to other countries in South Asia and Africa, India had a fairly good scientific infrastructure because previous prime ministers like Nehru and mm-hmm. Indira Gandhi and Manmohan Singh, uh, you know, gave respect to scientists, uh, you know, gave gave universities That's and research right, yeah. laboratories autonomy and independence, did not impose their views, their prejudices, their political preferences on them. So, you know, see, unlike some other countries, poorer countries in South Asia, we did have a scientific infrastructure. We, our government should have consulted our top biologists, some of whom are fellows of the Royal Society, much more widely. You know, should have, mm-hmm. should have got the research, the testing in place, getting the best minds on board. So it was not as if we didn't have these minds. We have, of course, we, we don't. I mean, we, right, right. In that sense, by the standards of a developing country, we have a reasonably well-developed scientific infrastructure that was disregarded by this government. Tell me, do you, would it be safe to say that among, would it be accurate to say that that Modi in the political culture, at least of his base, has now become virtually a religious figure? Yes, he had become that, and he certainly was that till a few weeks ago. But now as the bodies pile up, including of, uh, uh, you know, uh, members of the ruling party, one of the extraordinary and sad and tragic, but also revealing developments of the last few weeks, Leon, is that people are issuing appeals on Twitter because they can't trust the government or the public health system or indeed the private hospitals uh, to get them. So they're going to Twitter saying, get... You know, get my my uncle is desperately sick. Can one of you get me an oxygen cylinder? Now, these kind of appeals are being made by BJP ministers in the union government. So I think something is turning, you know, maybe slowly, maybe after an awful cost has been exacted, you know. But I think the cult-like status that Modi had, he was a kind of a combination of a guru and a king. uh, and that's how he presented uh-huh. himself with his long flowing beard, being big, with his long beard. I noticed big, he big grew photographed for the with peacocks who are <laughs> sacred and that kind of stuff, feeding a peacock. So yeah. I think some of that halo is now, uh, you know, coming out. So you think that it, the perception is increasingly prevalent in India that there was act that there has occurred a catastrophic failure that is of the slow, government. Uh, I would say increasingly it's slowly growing, and what's going to happen is, of course, as the months go by and and the numbers of those killed mount and the families who are grieving for their lost ones run into tens of millions, and of course the economy doesn't really recover, so you don't have can't find succor in other spheres. I think this disenchantment might grow. Was Modi's contempt for science, was that something that he was, um, was that a reflection of what he thought his base wanted or was that really just generated no, from him? See, uh, it's not generated from him. 
Celeste, I should explain. Unlike Trump again, you see, Modi is the product of an organization called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh, which is almost 100 years old and which has spread its network deep into almost every part of India. It's an organization committed to Hindu supremacy and a kind of golden age view of the world, which holds that 2,000 years ago, Hindus dominated the world and they will do so again. And if you cultivate your religious pride intensely enough, Hindus will teach the West how to run their business. And there are sub-aspects of our ancient culture. And in fact, our ancient scientific culture, which the West can learn from, such as yoga, uh, and which Modi himself practices, as did Jawaharlal mm-hmm. Nehru. But these select aspects of our ancient wisdom mm-hmm. are then magnified into a a fantastic belief that Hindus are destined to be world teachers, Vishwa Guru, as the Hindi phrase goes. And so, uh, you know, do you don't have to respect modern mm-hmm. science because just be Hindu enough and uh, you will win, you will prosper, you will progress and you will become a superpower. Is this like a large plurality of the Indian No, it's not a large plurality, but it is the dogmatic belief of the entire cater of the RSS. And it's similar uh, to how communists once believed, you know, that uh, Marxism will triumph. Socialism is scientific. Everything else is irrational. The proletariat and and the Politburo will lead not only the Soviet Union to prosperity, but also to world domination. So it's that kind of cultic, cultish belief that some religions have. And communism also at a certain stage uh, in the 20th century uh, as Leon knows so well, had. Yeah, the, you know, the, one of the the world world history would have been a happier story generally if religions had not felt so seduced by the prospect of power and universal domination. Uh, I wanted to ask you: um, te- Can you talk a little bit? We 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 read about Modi here and the BJP, and we see the we read about the virus, and we see these horrific photographs of the funeral pyres and we read the numbers what we don't read about is the opposition to modi and the state of the opposition and and so on can you give us a sense of of of, yeah. of the, the political situation in terms of the anti-modi i will leon because that's very important to understanding also why he came to power essentially the congress party the party of gandhi and nehru uh, the great party of the Indian freedom struggle, the party that is even older than the British yeah. Labour Party and many other parties around the world, the party that inspired Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress and many liberation movements in Asia and Africa, that great political party has become captive to a family firm. And a family firm who, yeah. which with each successive generation is more and more incompetent and more and more lazy. And the current incumbent, Rahul Gandhi, is yeah. the laziest and most incompetent leader ever of the Congress Party. And of course, the laziest and most incompetent leader uh-huh. of his own family. But that family has captured yeah. the Congress. And Modi, when he ran for prime minister right. in 2014, posited himself as the self-made dynamic administrator of a large state, Gujarat, against an incompetent useless man who had never held a job. All of it was true. An entitled man, a princeling who had never held a proper job. And seven years later, it is still Rahul Gandhi and his mother who control the Congress Party. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is that in several states of the Republic, there is vigorous 
provincial level opposition to Modi. So Modi's biggest political failure came earlier this month when he lost uh, his party lost a major state election in the state of Bengal, in which they had invested everything, including uh-huh. or many dozen speeches by Modi, even after the second wave of the pandemic had begun. In South India, where I live, likewise in several states of South India, it is regional parties based on regional linguistic and ethnic identities that are vigorously opposing Modi. So at the national level, unfortunately, the major opposition party, the Congress has really disintegrated and is a pale shadow of what it could even what it even was 10 years ago. Uh, as I said, every generation of the Congress party is lazier and more incompetent. Rahul Gandhi's mother, Sonia Gandhi, was hardworking <laughs> yeah. and focused. She was entitled. She worshipped her family. Yeah. But she put in the hours, which this young man, or no longer young man, is incapable of doing. And is there any is are there any is there any revolt against this dynastic control within Congress or are they well, just there was it? a big uh, revolt uh, several months ago. Twenty three leaders, senior leaders signed a letter, but nothing happened. You know why the Gandhis control oh. the party is mm-hmm. something of a mystery. Maybe they control the finances, uh, which is the obvious obvious explanation. Oh. Maybe oh. Sonia Gandhi is a matriarchal figure who has a psychological hold over everyone else. There was a weak revolt. It hasn't worked. And at the moment, what, you know, if the Gandhis realize that the game is up, but they don't. Sonia Gandhi thinks that ultimately the narrative will turn against Modi and her darling son will be the face of the opposition. But among the rest of the opposition, no one accepts him as the leader. Among, uh, you know, the kind of feisty woman chief minister of Bengal, who just won an election, among the southern chief ministers, among what remains of the once vibrant Indian left-wing tradition, there is contempt and scorn for the major yeah. leadership of the Congress Party. So at the national level, in fact, there isn't anybody you could exactly. admire or and support what's happened right now. And why this works to Modi's advantage, why it worked to his advantage in 2014 and 2019, is that although our political system is modeled on the Westminster uh, you know, uh, kind of system, it's become increasingly presidential. You know, uh, Indians yearn for a strong leader yeah. to rule them. And it's not about policies right. and right. ideologies and party programs, but about leadership. And, uh, you know, you're lucky that you had Biden against Trump. And anyway, yours is a presidential system and has always been. Here, it's been converted into a presidential system. So we still have three years to go till the next election. And it's possible that a leader might come. But there's no clear candidate uh, who will, can be put as the person against Modi in the 2024 general election. Yeah. Yeah, you see, we were lucky in that, and this is true, lucky compared not just to India, but uh, to other countries, and it was a great stroke of luck. We were lucky that we had a Biden. Yeah. That was our good luck. Uh, And we, um, do you, I should put, yeah. Do you remember Amartya's old, Amartya Sen's old argument about famines? Remember that, that famines are not natural disasters, they're political disasters. Uh, you would say the same thing is true of the corona, well, of the with coronavirus qualifications, crisis. Uh, Leon, uh, corona is a natural disaster. Uh, you know, it is. it has come yeah, from outside and it's left us unprepared. But where there are parallels with what Amartya said and his 
distinguished collaborator Jean Drez argued, is that a free press is critical to mitigating the, the devastating impact of a famine yeah. and indeed of a pandemic. So uh, one of the consequences of the Modi regime is strict controls of the press and the conversion of large sections of the press into a propaganda arm for, for the government and at the yeah, suppression of the independent press. Ahead, so, yeah. you know, uh, what uh, Sen and yeah. argued was that in after the, after the British left India, India has never had a major famine because of its free press. Whereas China experienced a great leap right. forward because the party apparatchiks would not tell their bosses, let alone Mao, the truth about what was happening in the countryside. So something mm-hmm. similar is happening now with some differences, mm-hmm. which I'll just briefly explain and then I'll stop. You know, we are a federal system in many different states. In North India, which is controlled by the BJP, reports of illness and death are suppressed by the chief ministers owing allegiance to Modi's party. In Kerala, which is not under the BJP, and in Maharashtra, uh, which is home to the city of Mumbai with an advanced scientific and intellectual culture, there is more truth and transparency, and hence there's been better management of the pandemic. So to that extent, Sen, the Sen Dres mm-hmm. thesis does have some salience. Where there's truth and transparency, you tackle mm-hmm. disasters better than when you suppress information and try to control the narrative. Ram, I know that a while back you were you were arrested. I think in Bangalore, right? I mean, and I, I mean, do you feel, uh, and do writers and intellectuals and journalists in India, independent ones, do you feel under threat in the Modi years? I mean, how how anxiously do you live about the threat to, to freedom of speech and freedom you know, of the press? I am not personally anxious because I have to do my job. But threats to journalists, particularly those writing in Indian languages, not so much in English, you know, I may be modestly protected by my international reputation, right? So it's harder for the government to get after me, though they may still get after me. It's not as they won't. But a brave young journalist in the countryside writing on the suppression of information by a BJP government, writing on how 200 people were cremated in a particular town on a particular day and the government figures say five people were cremated. Or people writing about environmental conflicts, about crony capitalism, uh, you know, which is rampant under the Modi regime. These are the people in the front lines who are vulnerable. India's place on the Fresh Freedom Index is now about 140. It used to be about 110. It was never particularly high, but it's precipitously dropped in the last eight or ten years. So, you know, I'm not worried about my safety. You know, that, that's, mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, I'm too old for that, first of all. You know, <laughs> but it's younger journalists who are active and yeah. brave and generally write in the Indian languages, who are much more, and in uh, the major Indian language, Hindi, who are really much more vulnerable. Hindi. I see. Where, do they, where are they published? So are there, there organs publish? Essentially, large sections of the press, Celeste, have been controlled by the state. They've become propaganda arms. But there are a few brave websites. There are a few brave journalists even working for the mainstream media. And, uh, you know, there's an outstanding website for Scroll and News Laundry in English, for example. And there's some also decent writers in, you know, in, in all our different languages who, wherever their space exists, write. Uh, but uh, hmm. writers have been murdered, uh, particularly writers who attack Hindu fundamentalism. I mean, there have been a spate of murders of uh, intellectuals, yeah. not very many so far. But uh, uh, it's, I'll put it this way, you know, we are nowhere near as democratic as uh, the United States or Canada or Sweden, 
but we aren't as just awfully authoritarian as Russia and Turkey, though we may be getting there. Uh-huh. Are these journalists um, being attacked by the government or by Modi well, supporters? Both, both. So both. I mean, the murders were by freelance people, and they haven't been, uh, you know, they haven't been solved. But I tell you, for example, you since you asked about me, I'll give you an example uh, about something that happened to me, not very serious, but illustrative of how the government works. I had a column for many years in the leading English language paper of Delhi called the Hindustan Times, which was once edited by Gandhi's son. Right. Now, and when they yeah. asked, offered me a column, I said, I will write on condition, nothing will ever be censored. You may ask me to change a, uh, you know, a, an adjective because you feel it's libelous or crude or polemical. But they censored a column of mine on, uh, this is more than a year ago, on this project to redevelop New Delhi, which includes a new house for Modi. When the pandemic broke in March, in March right. 2020, in March wow. 2020, I wrote a piece for the Hindustan right. Times as part of my regular column where I said, this project cost 20,000 crores. I can't immediately convert it into dollars. But I said, the prime minister is asking all of us to sacrifice at the time of the pandemic. He must sacrifice this vanity project of his. And in that column, I compared what he was yeah. doing to what, uh, you know, what the president of the Ivory Coast had done. You'll remember V.S. Naipaul's famous essay. Right. And I think I mentioned this yes. in my piece on in Libre for Liberties too. And that column was censored. Yes, and Yes, sir. And that the Hindustan Times, yes. Hindustan Times proprietor said, I cannot publish that column. Send me something else this week. And we won't discontinue your uh, column. But this particular piece on the central vista. So uh, I said, then I'll be drawing my column and I took it elsewhere. Right. But that's how it begins. Right. So, and it was you know, very soberly argued and it wasn't, it just said, all of us have to sacrifice and let the prime minister sacrifice his project. Right. Now, and uh, that project is still going ahead. And again, that project has become strikingly relevant again because it's being mentioned in many stories on the foreign press. And what is not being mentioned is that as we speak, the gorgeous central road of New Delhi, Rajpath, uh, which leads from India Gate to the president's house, is being dug up. And at that road, there's a large sign saying, no photography or videography allowed. In Delhi. Oh, in, you know, it's like in, 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 the, in the heart yeah. of uh, the capital of a country claiming to be the in largest democracy yeah. in the world. Modi's vandalism, uh, you cannot yes. document it. Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I was talking to uh, an Indian friend who was very alarmed the other day, <clears throat> and he said, <coughs> excuse me, that, that, that India is, is going to become or is becoming a Hindu, a Hindu version of Pakistan. I mean, do you think, uh, that seems a bit extreme to me, but do you think that there are things like yes. blasphemy laws ahead yes. for India? Are so there we any are going in that direction. This? But because we are much larger and more diverse than Pakistan and we have a more robust democratic history, uh, it won't be that easy to convert us into Indo-Pakistan. But certainly the ruling party, Modi, the ruling yeah. party, the BJP, and their supportive organization, the RSS, fully intend to make us a Hindu-Pakistan. And on this general question here, within the, the catastrophic, negligence and uh, delinquence of the government during the virus, 
did the Modi administration treat Muslim Indians different yes, from yes. Hindu so, Indians? Uh, let's go back to just before the virus. When I was arrested in December 2019, okay. it was because I, along with uh-huh. hundreds of thousands of others, was protesting a citizenship law which would effectively make Muslims second class. So, uh, you know, so it was yes, really very yes. much based on, you know, medieval Islamic laws in which states where Jews and Christians were regarded second class. So the stigmatization, demonization mm-hmm. of Muslims precedes the pandemic. Early in the pandemic, there was a Muslim religious gathering, which was should not have been held with a few hundred people as they tested uh, positive for COVID. And the government media channels, private media channels funded by the government, just went ballistic about Muslims. That was last year in March. This year in February and March, there was mm-hmm. a Hindu festival in which millions of people bathed in the Ganges. The government gave its blessings. Modi gave its blessings. And of course, they said, God will protect you. Nothing will happen to you. So, uh, abso- ab- they, so absolutely, you know, the majoritarian slant of the government has been made more yeah. visible during the pandemic. Ram, a friend of mine in India also, he told me he was under the impression that provinces that were supportive of Modi were able to get the vaccine, whereas provinces that weren't are having a harder time. Is that, well, it's is that too true? early to say. It's too early to say. And, I, you know, obviously you can't, uh, one doesn't know. But what one does know about this uh, government is that uh, it lives and functions through deceit and mis- misinformation of all kinds. So what the true information is, one will never know. And just as I said about science, that India had, by the standards of uh, the third world, uh, developed scientific infrastructure. India had one of the best statistical systems in the world. You know, our GDP statistics, our labor Mm. statistics, our our productivity statistics were hugely admired. And Modi has destroyed that completely. Mm. So no one can trust what this government says. Well, but then they've then then what you have is a is a is almost a kind of epistemological crisis in which people operate with two different two different pictures Absolutely. of reality, which is a very very dangerous situation. Ram, given how diverse India is, um, it can't it can't be that. Well, I don't know. Is it is it that there is a majority of support within the country for Modi, or is it that? There are a lot of people who are a growing number of people who are disappointed with his performance, but there's there is no political alternative, yeah. and so he will continue to have power so for that. There are three years to the next general election. Uh, there are two or three important state elections in which Modi's party may not do that well. But when mm-hmm. it comes to the next general election, as I said, Celeste, you know, uh, because they are becoming presidential, unless the opposition can find a candidate who is relatively untainted. Who does not? Who's not dynastic? Who's not a fifth generation dynast? Uh, and above all, who is a fluent orator in Hindi, which is the language spoken by a plurality of Indians, not a majority of Indians, yeah. but a plurality of Indians. Mm-hmm. And Modi is a demagogue. His oratorical style is, you know, polemic and bluster, but he's quite effective at that. And Rahul Gandhi, despite having been in politics twenty years, you know, still can't speak. Uh, fluent Hindi. So I think it all depends on this. But a three years is a very long time. Yeah. yeah. Is that right? That's extraordinary. Well, That's shameful. It is, it is shameful. Uh, he inherited his uh, family borough in northern India and he won there uh, yeah. 
twice. And then he, actually three times. And then he moved, he was scared he would lose. So he moved to a seat in Southern India, a safe Congress stronghold. 15 years as an MP from Northern India, and he still can't give a one-hour speech in English, in Hindi, which is not peppered by hundreds of words in English. So he's essentially lazy and incompetent. He's not just a fifth-generation entitled dynast. He's lazy and incompetent. But it sounds like it's a competition between people who in two different ways think that they are gods. That's very well said. They're very well said. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Rahul thinks he's divine because of his lineage. Modi thinks he's divine because of the personal attributes his followers bestow upon him. But that's very well said. Both of them think they're divine. Both of them think they're God's gift to India. And India is lucky to have. And India is lucky to have yes. That's what they think. That's the kind of monarchical, anti-democratic sentiment in their heart and in their mind. Both of them. So would you say as a general, as a historian, that the great tradition of Nehru is dead? Well, dead is strong, but dead is strong. Yes, it I is. think what Gandhi and Nehru and B.R. Ambedkar and other great leaders of the Indian Renaissance, Tagore, you know, yes. some of this might come back. For example, uh, just as an illustration, the state of Bengal, which, as I said, just uh, witnessed a fiercely fought state election. Uh, part of the yes. reasons Modi grew his beard because he wanted to live like, look like Tagore, who was the great icon of Bengal. Okay. <laughs> now, but that miserably failed, and the Bengalis rejected him overwhelmingly. Right. So I'm not that despairing. What I despair about Leon is that India will survive. India will outlive both Modi and Rahul Gandhi. Uh, uh, But what I despair about is the damage done to our economy, our social fabric, and our institutions in these seven or eight years. That will take a long time. We'll take a long time to rebuild that trust, uh, that reciprocity, and that institutional autonomy. And, And because, as you say, if one recalls the grandeur and the enlightenment of the tradition of Gandhi and Ambedkar and Nehru and Tagore, one looks around in India right now and one doesn't see it. Well, not in the political class. You see it. it, you... Is, it is it expressed locally? Is it expressed culturally? Is it, are, there, are there writers or journalists who, who people like myself should be reading? I mean, tell, again, I'd there's say, the political I'd opposition, but there's also the I'd say if you're reading... Uh, uh, in English, the one website you should read is called Scroll, S-C-R-O-L-L. It has an outstanding editor, some uh-huh. first-rate and very brave journalists who have been doing fantastic reporting on the crisis. It has a great, it has a great film Wonderful. section. It has an adequate books, books and literature section. Oh. It pays serious attention to Indian oh. classical music, which is our most elevated art form. So I just. I just scroll S C R O L L dot I N. All your listeners who are interested in India, uh, of course, there are other good websites. There's some decent newspaper columnists, but follow scroll to begin with. Liberties will make it a point to become friends of scroll. Yes, yes. How, how old are the editors so, and writers uh, the, there? Uh, so the writer, uh, the editor is, I think, just turned fifty. Uh, he's a wonderful man called Naresh Fernandez, who, among other things, has written a great history of the coming of jazz to India from the 19th century. 
black black africans oh, no. coming he studied in columbia uh, in, in columbia school of journalism he worked briefly at the wall street journal he returned to india to start time out which then collapsed and then he started scroll but he's a very nurturing editor so in his oh, time as editor of scroll which is i think 5 or 6 years he has mentored half a dozen outstanding young journalists i think if memory serves okay. three women and three men maybe four women and three men who i follow regularly who break uh-huh. brilliant stories from different parts of india uh, his deputy editor is one of india's best film critic uh, he has a decent book review editor and he gets one of india's great classical musicians who has a phd in music history to write about indian music so that's the kind of editor he is and i must declare oh, an interest he also publishes me but that's leave me aside all right okay. <laughs> well look nobody's perfect but uh but i'm glad that we had that that, that you've told our listeners Please. to go on to scroll it sounds very admirable there are also really other does. very good websites so i so i'm you know but some of them are very yeah. adversarial you know sort of uh, with due respect what the gun yeah. the guardian is like you know self described as anti establishment which sometimes yeah. becomes black and white Yes, I'm tempted to ask you to explain how jazz did come to it's India, called, but I'll get the book. It's called Taj Mahal Foxtrot, which I think was the name of a band. <laughs> and, and Naresh Fernandez's Twitter handle is at Taj Mahal Foxtrot. But he knows he knows about much more than jazz. But do read his book on jazz. <laughs> so is scroll um, not overtly anti-modal? Uh, I, I didn't get that question, Sinas. Can you ask it again? You you said that the other you you contrasted scroll with the other publications which are adversarial no, like a, predominantly adversarial so, so I'm just it's, wondering it's, if, it's critical of Modi yeah. but it also sometimes is critical of the Congress Party but it's fair and balanced and yeah. empirical and robust and readable and readable all of that and I would of course it would be but it's not you know need against Modi for the sake of being against Modi you know uh, it runs stories which document why you have to be skeptical of the government for example one very good story it ran about a week mm-hmm. ago was uh, many plane loads of oxygen cylinders came to delhi as part of foreign aid from many countries probably your country being one of them and there was no information on how the cylinders were distributed to which states in what proportions in what way so stroll did a fantastic story on that you know from which obviously you draw the conclusion that this government is certainly incompetent and possibly biased too but that it's the reporter that led you to that conclusion not some kind of deranged abusive polemic uh-huh ram talk a little bit about you haven't mentioned the indian left i mean the i you know i read things by arundhati roy i read that man pankaj mishra neither of these writers do i read with much admiration but i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh what the so-called progressives are saying and how significant a force they are in indian you culture know, i'd rather not talk about that leon i don't think i talk about something that's much more important uh maybe your maybe your listeners oh, don't know oh. you know uh about uh, <laughs> Five or six months ago, Modi passed three farm laws without consulting the states, even include even though agriculture is a state subject, and without any discussion in parliament. Oh, and 
As a result, they, for the last several months, they've been protest by farmers on the borders of Delhi, completely non-violent, you know, with wonderful evocations of language, of music, of humor, uh, led by Sikh farmers, uh, brave, but not only Sikh farmers, Hindu farmers and Muslim farmers too. So it's the most important popular movement against the Modi regime by peasants who are the backbone of Gandhi's national movement, of course, right. And incredibly non-violent, resolute. Uh, they've been demonized, stigmatized. They face water cannons and they're still there saying, rescind these farm laws because they were passed without even consulting with us. Oh, you live in a, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a, a tragic situation, it's a grotesque situation. Yeah, yeah. Ram, I, I, you know, it's, um, it's been very sobering to talk to you about this. It really has. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you sound as cheerful as you do. Uh, what are you so, writing? Uh, what, what, I was writing something before the pandemic, um, Leon, uh, and I finished it during the pandemic. It'll come out next year. Uh, it's a book uh, uh, about seven remarkable foreigners, four English, one Irish, oh. and two Americans who joined the Indian freedom struggle and made enormous creative contributions to oh. India through the whole of the 20th century. These are seven extraordinary, exemplary, exciting, idiosyncratic lives. And I have woven them together in a collective narrative of about to showcase, to show India's encounter with the modern West with a view to telling these stories, but also with a larger lesson. Don't be xenophobic, whether you're Trump and the white, whether you're well, exactly. Trump and the white supremacists or Boris Johnson and Brexit or Xi Jinping, who ch thinks China is the center of the world or Modi and his RSS, we have something to learn from foreigners. And here are seven foreigners who taught us Indians so many things that we can still uh, learn from. Bravo, bravo. That's exactly right. So that's that's the book, exactly right. That's the book. Right. It'll be out next uh, year in March. I think Knopf is publishing it in your country and it'll be published elsewhere too. So that's what I finished during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I, I keep on writing my columns and... and Good. And then next we have to we have to think about what you'll write next for liberties. We have to discuss that. Maybe we could do something with sure, your book. Sure, absolutely. Good. Ram, well, thank you so much for, for spending yeah, some time absolutely. with us today. Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that conversation and you have not already subscribed to Liberties, head over to libertiesjournal.com. Very shortly, digital subscriptions will be available to all subscribers, which will include every issue of Liberties, past and present, available online. So if you would like to read Ramakandra Guha's essay, The Indian Tragedy, about Indian nationalism and Modi's rule in issue one of Liberties, it will be readily available to you. Thank you.